0: Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of The New Books Network, and we have another podcast recommendation for you. It's Uli Bears Think About It. On the podcast, Uli interviews all kinds of interesting people about all kinds of interesting things. He has three series that I'd highly recommend, one on free speech, another on great books, and finally, one on affirmative action. You can find Think About It on Apple Podcasts, Or you can just go to Uli's website, which is ulrichbear.com. That's U-L-R-I-C-H-B-A-E-R.com. And you can download or listen to episodes there. We think this is a terrific podcast. In fact, it's so terrific that we're going to offer you a little taste of it. The episode you're about to hear is from Think About It, and I hope you enjoy it.
1: Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not Cabaret. It's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Baer. Simone de Beauvoir's 1949 landmark study, The Second Sex, is a total book about the need for total change. But de Beauvoir is also realistic. It is our task and our obligation, and we are all aware that big things begin with small things. The Second Sex is not a small book. It's over 700 pages and gives you the entire history, the mythology, the cultural, social, and economic reasons, but also a path to liberation for women who have been oppressed and relegated to the position of helpers, assistants, supporters, caregivers, or either objects of reverence, fascination, or lust and desire. I spoke with Kate Stimson, One of the academics who founded the fields of women and what is today gender studies in America. Kate explains how big revolutions often start with small things and why it is so important to recognize Simone de Beauvoir's central contribution, which is that freedom cannot be given to anyone, but that it is everyone's to take, and that The Second Sex, this landmark book, is a book that everyone should read to claim his or her own freedom. Welcome, Kate. I'm sitting here with Professor Kate Stimson, who is a colleague and a friend. And first of all, I want to thank you for joining me on the podcast today.
2: Well, what I told Uli when I finally got an invitation to be on his podcast. Thank you, my dear friend. I thought you'd never ask. So I'm delighted
1: to be here. I'm glad I finally got around to asking you. (laughs) So I wanted to invite you to talk about Simone de Beauvoir's 1949, The Second Sex, I've been reading this book for a while, I've been thinking a lot about its significance as a foundational text of what we today would call feminism. And in light of the Me Too movement started by Tarana Burke, really to empower victims of sexual violence, to give them a sense of belonging and community, and the 2016 presidential election where gender, as we would say today, but the role of women, as Simone de Beauvoir would have said, became an issue. Can you remember when you encountered Simone de Beauvoir's book for the first time and how you actually came across it?
2: Well, what we have to realize is that de Beauvoir wrote this book in French in 1949, and the French women had gotten the vote only four years before, in 1945. So she was writing at a moment where within living memory of teenagers – women did not have the vote. I first encountered it in the 1960s. And I became active in what was then the very new women's movement. And I taught the second sex. But in English, this may be too arcane, but I don't think so. In English, there are really two second sexes. The first translation by a zoologist named Parshley. And thank God for H.M. partially, because he brought us the second sex, but he left out 15% of the original text. He misunderstood some of the philosophy. So I read an imperfect text, and we didn't get a good translation until 2009. But I immediately started to teach this book. It's long. It's difficult. And I was at Barnard College with these bright, right, students, and we read the second sex, no matter how imperfectly, in English and Uli. I still remember this young Columbia student who was in the Barnett class, and he came over to me, and now we've got to get to the heart of what she's saying. He came over to me and he said, Professor Stimson, if all women have been oppressed at all times, In all places, what do you want me, a college sophomore, to do about it?
1: It's interesting that a male student would pick up and say, what is my obligation? What is my
2: obligation? Well, I think he was in the class because of his girlfriend. But we looked at each other and I said, your obligation is to behave properly. And your obligation is to read the last part of the second sex where she talks about the conditions of liberation but when we talk about de beauvoir and when we talk really about what you want to do with your podcasts let's ask ourselves and ask our listeners and thank you for being there what is a great book right what do we mean by that and i have four tests of what a great book is One, is it influential? That's necessary, but not sufficient. Mein Kampf by Adolf Hitler was influential. But I would not call it a great book. Because a great book, like The Second Sex, has these three other qualities. One, it has magnitude of thought. You really sense... The human mind stretching itself and going into places that ordinary people like me haven't been. This is why some science fiction like Octavia Butler is great books. The third quality is magnitude of style. Does it use the language, whether it's Chinese or, or French Or Spanish or Hindi? Does it use language in ways that show you the possibility of writing? Metaphor, structure, does it show you language going places it hasn't gone before? And the third element, and this may seem just old-fashioned and pious, magnitude of morality, does it show you the possibility of a world, no matter how complicated, in which we struggle with good and evil, and somehow we're given a compass to find the dwelling of the better angels of our nature?
1: You're raising a really great set of criteria, so it's the influence of a book, it's capacity of imagination, erudition, knowledge, and stretches our imagination. Mm -hmm. It's style, the use of language to probably reimagine and not just reflect. Mm -hmm. And then to have this moral imagination to imagine the world in new ways. It goes directly to a question that Simone de Beauvoir asked herself a lot and say, is a woman capable of writing in this way? And she had said about this book She started writing this book because she wanted to write about herself, and had encountered too many times people saying, well, you as a woman believe this or that. And she would say, no, I believe this because it is true. And then she said, I wanted to write about myself. And I was struck by the fact that I started out every statement by saying, I as a woman, which men don't tend to do.
2: Right. You're absolutely right. But let's go back to the question of what is a great book. And if we put together magnitude of influence, magnitude of thought, magnitude of language, and magnitude of the moral imagination, then we have a book that people want to go back to again and again and again. But who was Spulford? Who was this woman? Do you know what her full name was? She was born into a French Catholic family. And she did not have a short name like Ulibert.
1: Right. In 1908,
2: right? (laughs) 1908. And her full name was Simone, Lucy, Ernestine, Marie, Bertrand de Beauvoir. Her family, as you know, was Catholic. Her early education was Catholic. Her family was conservative. Her family believed in traditional values. And she might be a tribute to the possibility of deep tradition producing deep radicals. She was a brilliant student. She went to the Sorbonne, and she fell in with that group of French intellectuals we call the existentialists. Her lifetime companion was the existentialist Jean-Paul Sartre. They had what we can only call a complicated relationship. Fidelity of the body was not necessarily its chief criterion. Of course, everyone thought, well, he's the guy, and she's Simone. But I think if we look, if we really look at what they did, they are, at the very least, equals. Together, they went through the Second World War living in occupied Paris, occupied by the Germans, Nazis. And that's a complicated period, and I hope sometime only we'll bring someone on this program who can describe accurately and fully what it is like to survive when you're occupied by a group like the Nazis. And what did they do to get by? But liberation came in forty four, The vote for women came in 45. And as you said, when in the introduction to Second Sex, Beauvoir says, I didn't want to write this book. I've avoided this subject. I I, I didn't like being considered a woman. And the story you tell, Luli, has even more ramifications. People would say to her, You only say that because you're a woman. And she would answer, No. I say that because it's true. And then she thought, well, I also say it because I'm me. And what does it mean? So she sat down, not wanting to write this book, but she wrote this book in two volumes. It's a long book. Well, the Bible's a long book, The Iliad and the Odyssey are long books.
1: Harry Potter (laughs) is a long set of seven books, which (laughs) to encourage people that you can tackle seven volumes.
2: (laughs) One must not be afraid of long journeys. And with Beauvoir, you can work your way through it. It has a very clear structure. And she writes with great subtlety and intricacy. But if the translation is right, you can always tell where she's going. She has a mind that is marked by the virtue of being both deep and lucid.
1: And in that way, she is like a scientific philosopher. And What's striking about the first part where she chronicles the history, the myth, the fables, the legends, the fictions about women... Throughout all of human history, she has so many details, and yet you know she's telling you a long, comprehensive story.
2: Absolutely. I like your word comprehensive. Beauvoir is giving, there must be a German word for this, a total history. And then she ends with a hopeful note. What
1: can we do now?
2: Now, what is the German word for the artwork
1: that brings in everything? Gesamtkunstwerk. Right, the how... total encompassing work of art that <laughs> combines all the senses. What is all the, the German word
2: we would use <laughs> for the philosophical work that combines all the disciplines yeah. and moves from the beginning of time
1: to the end? Well, It's something like a Hegelian universal historia, historia or something right. like that, a universal history. And as you're saying, she... Gives us the first chronicle, not in any way to justify anything, but you end up reading the first book and thinking, so this has been the condition of women through history. And then you arrive at what she calls lived experience.
2: Right. Yeah. Let's just go through it, if our listeners can bear with us, because to respect this book is to respect the nature of the journey that she's taking us on. The deep underlying idea comes from the 19th century German philosopher you just mentioned, Hegel. And his deep idea here is not exactly cheerful. It is not exactly a happy, happy description of human nature. And you have to correct me if I'm wrong, but in this way, his description of human nature is a little bit like the English philosopher Thomas Hobbes description of nature. We live in a state of nature and it's short, brutish, cruel, etc, etc. But what is she saying? Now I want our listeners to mention Uli and I are sitting here in a studio. We're regarding each other. We're both civil we have both been raised to be mannerly people. We've both been raised to regard other people politely. We have put a costume of behavior over our deep impulses. And those impulses, we really look at each other with hostility. We fear
1: each other. This is the idea of Thomas Hobbes. This is Tom, <laughs> of the, and this
2: is the idea of Hegel that Beauvoir adapts.
1: And if I <laughs> add one thing, yeah. there's this kind of agonistic relationship. And then in Hegel, he says, it also is found within ourselves. We are also unhappy with the fact that we know ourselves, this idea of an unhappy consciousness. Which, so at first, you're right, Simone de Beauvoir gives us this idea that People are put on the planet in the prehistory. There's a competitive dimension to it.
2: Oh, there's competitive. But people want to get out of this state of hostility. And what do they do? They think of themselves as subjects. I am Kate. I am an active subject. I'm sitting across from Uli. He is an active subject. But he bothers me. I bother him. And so what we do is we cast other people as the other, different from ourselves, and then we try to control them. We try to master them. We may even try to enslave them. We make them safe for ourselves. So it is the great subject-other relationship. And Beauvoir's insight, her formidable insight, was to genderize this relationship. Men want to be subjects. They want to be active in the world. They want to act in freedom. And they have made women for millennia. They have made women the other, sometimes literally enslave them, but they have made women subordinate to themselves and therefore the title, The Second Sex.
1: Hmm.
2: How would you pronounce it in French? Your French is better than mine.
1: The deuxième Sex. (laughs) The deuxième Sex. Which is, and she wants to place emphasis on this process, this is an active human act to turn the other into somebody you can either subjugate, oppress, or idolize, idealize.
2: Well, that's part of the trick of it. And Beauvoir is... Very acute, and how thinking they were in love masks the reality of the relationship. The 19th century British male feminist John Stuart Mill was also very good about this. He says, What we have in relations between the sexes is an intimate and domestic relationship. And Beauvoir will add to that. It's because women live within the home, it's very hard for them to organize. And it's not really till the 19th century in the beginning of industrial labor that women can form some kind of political solidarity. Mm -hmm. Women have always had networks. They've always been women's world. But it's not until a modern period that this becomes politically a force of solidarity. But we can look at contemporary Africa and the great women leaders there, working out of women's networks and women's worlds. But the journey, what is the journey she takes us on? I should add that it's very French.
1: In what sense? <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, she she's very French about marriage. And You take lover. What happens when either the man or the wife takes a lover? And quite frankly, when I go back to the second sex, I remember that she was almost a contemporary of Colette in her understanding. And And
1: what's maybe French about that is that, of course, people take lovers all over the world. But the French kind of casually refer to it and say, yes, there was somebody, but we're still together. So in some ways, actually, the openness, which is a kind of coquettish or playful, but somehow strikes American readers as rather scandalous to admit to this kind of possibility.
2: Let me tell you about the journey, and you'll see the source of the scandal. So, she starts off saying, she was really asking us, how did this happen? How did 50% of the human race become the second sex, become subordinate? How did this happen to us? So, she goes to the academic disciplines like biology. Does this offer an answer? Only partially. She looks at history. Well, what happened in the nomadic period? She says, "Well, maybe, it probably has something to do with women's reproductive capacity." But she also has a passage, only really, if we have time, where she talks about how men really hate women's bodies, and she writes,
3: "Dans toutes les civilisations et de nos jours encore, elle inspire à l'homme de l'horreur. C'est l'horreur de sa propre contingence charnelle qu'il projette en elle." In all civilizations and still in our day, woman inspires man with horror. It is the horror of his own carnal contingents, which he projects upon her.
2: And that's what we do to the other. We project upon them all that we fear in mm. ourselves. Mm. We empty ourselves of our bad feelings and say, oh, it's you.
1: It's you. She says one very concrete things. When she says that men have, in this characterization, this abhorrence of the menstrual cycle. And she said if men were bleeding once a month, it would be a sign of being touched by the divine, and they would celebrate it.
2: Well, precisely. So it's a
1: revaluation.
2: And what do we do with the blood in war? The bloodshed in war. We make martyrs out
1: of it. Celebrate. So she says these things are, they happen, they're real, but then men give it a certain kind of value. And this,
2: then she goes on to talk What are the myths we project on women? The eternal feminine, the demon, the temptress, and so on. Then she looks at five authors. This was very influential. Kate Millett did this in sexual politics. Look at certain authors and say what they say about women. Occasionally, you just want to throw up. Then she does her narrative of women to do today, how we're formed, and takes women through the life cycle from childhood to death two points here that I find interesting and I hope our listeners do. One is perhaps the most influential statement in the second sex. One is not born, but rather becomes a woman.
3: On ne naît pas femme, on le devient. One is not born, but rather becomes a woman. We call it socialization
2: deeply socialized by every force in society. And she has a chapter. This is part of the scandal of the book. She has a chapter about the lesbian. And she goes through, oh, is the lesbian, are her hormones crazy and masculine? And she says, oh, that's silly, because actually when you look at the hormones, men and women are pretty much alike, except, you know, for that menstrual cycle. And she says, no, the lesbian is a choice. And that leads to one of her most important ideas, that we always act in freedom and reciprocity. And love is not love unless it is done in freedom. And so the lesbian, despite her neckties, the lesbian becomes a symbol, an active symbol, of acting in freedom there is. And then at the end of the book she says what is necessary for liberation? One thing is to claim it. To act in the world. To think of yourself as a subject not as another. And then she's very shrewd about the condition of women. She said look they carry the double burden of housework and factory work. You can't be free of that. You have to do that.
1: And she talks about that throughout her lifetime. This is a woman who chose to supposedly live in a hotel room. She said housework is repetitive and therefore pointless in a certain way. It's not world-making the way Hannah Arendt would describe it. And she says, like Virginia Woolf, that economic equality is essential, that women have the means of income. They can become independent of being dependent on their fathers, brothers, or husbands, or other men. And so she has this very concrete part to it. She said economic equality has to be a possibility, which was right. the professions had been restricted, etc. Right. So certain conditions have to be met. When you say you have to claim your status as a subject, what does she mean by that? Because don't we all do that? Don't, doesn't every person do that when they wake up no. and say something about themselves?
2: No, because what she asks us to realize is what are all the social and cultural forces that have shaped our identity. So when we wake up in the morning and say, I'm at yada, 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 what's making us say that? Do we understand ourselves, or are we repeating scripts that we have been taught? Is this what we're doing? Really? She's very good about the scripts we've been taught. And Can I just say, what is one difficulty here in this monumental book? One of the enormous contributions of second-wave feminism and women of color, is to say to people like me, you white women, look at the differences among us. And I believe she is not sufficiently conscious of the differences among women. So that her narrative of who we are, I mean, she's conscious of slavery and she talks about it, but her narrative of who we are from birth to death, women are from birth to death, is limited. The big idea here is to look at the narrative from birth to death and to look at the myths and cultural and economic forces that shape that narrative. But there is here, every great book has blank pages, and the blank pages in this book, are about the differences among women, the crucial differences among women.
1: And can you say something about how the book allowed for something like second-wave feminism, if you could, in a sentence, tell us what that is, allowed for that, but at the same time, as you're saying, the book had to be not corrected, but revised, or adumbrated, explained, expanded. So how does a book do that? It actually sets something in motion. It allows for something...
2: Because it has... Readers and rewriters. In 1970, in sexual politics, Kate Millett did an American version of *The Second Sex*. And what, despite her flaws, this woman who died in 1986, what she gave us was ambition paths to liberation, and the truth of suffering that we would often deny.
1: So those three things. At least those three things. uh, I want to add something when you just said that second wave feminism pointed out rightly and corrected, say there's an oversight, there's a kind of one-dimensional story perhaps, when Beauvoir talks about freedom, to realize one's own freedom, in The Ethics of Ambiguity, she stresses that to realize my own freedom is a great thing, a good project. It's what she calls transcendence. Women are trapped in immanence. So it's a kind of existentialist choice.
2: But do, you do a sentence on the difference between transcendence and imminence? So
1: transcendence is to cast yourself out as a proje- as a subject to think I'm going to do something that is oriented toward the future. Beauvoir reminds us constantly, "I do not know what the future will be." Exactly. It's re- really interesting when people ask her, "What do you think your book will be in the future?" She said, "I have no idea, I cannot know the future. So transcendence is to project yourself as a subject into the world through action, through language, through behavior. imminence mm-hmm. is to be contained within yourself and see yourself as if through the eyes of another. Right. And when she talks about freedom, she says, "That's the model. however. If it's just my own personal freedom, it's a selfish and incomplete and actually not a real project because we are embedded in society and culture. So I have to be responsible for the other's freedom as well. Exactly.
2: It is a human project.
1: And this, I think, is the part where second wave feminism could connect because other people's liberation is as important for my own self-realization. But there is a nuance here.
2: There's a nuance, and it's an important nuance. And then there's a second reason why she's another reason why she's criticized her. No one can give another person freedom. Now Thomas Jefferson could legally give his slave children freedom, so you can give legal freedom in that sense. But it is existentially and morally wrong to say, "I give you your existential freedom." you must claim yourself as a subject but you're absolutely right that we must act in solidarity with other people while at the same time respecting their personhood so that's the political task is to act in solidarity respecting our differences but understand that we are all subjects we must extend the respect to others that we claim for ourselves. She is criticized for the ending where she says men and women together must affirm their quote-unquote
1: brotherhood. Such a French, great Parisian-French idea in 1949 to yes, right. liberté, égalité, <laughs> fraternité. fraternité. She ends on a very French note, and the book was not really welcomed in France. Oh, Cam- it was a scandal. Camus was outraged. She actually was really disturbed and surprised and unhappy. She said some people liked it, but they were vicious. And she said she had underestimated how much men would resent the fact that women could be liberated.
2: Absolutely. And this is in the book as well. She has a passage, this is very hard for men. Almost impossible. The feminist writer Susan Faludi, F-A-L-U-D-I, is one of the American feminists who Pointed to the male backlash, and did this at the end of the twentieth century and again the nineteenth century. Great English philosopher John Stuart Mill talked about how hard this is for men, and Virginia Woolf. Virginia Woolf said in one of her ironic and sardonic moments, "No man wants a woman to be inferior; he just wants to be superior." <laughs> and Beauvoir says, why would men want to give this up? And it's a profound question. Of course, she also realizes that, that some women have ruled men. And so she says, she says, look, there have been queens. And in the American context, white women own black slaves. So when she talks about it being a universal condition, she's also aware of the great exceptions when women have had power and not always behaved in the most genial and reciprocal fashion.
1: She has a very difficult thought in this book too in the second sex where she says the woman
3: d'aliénation. The woman pursues a dream of resignation, man pursues a dream of alienation. Finition.
1: The man in this subjugating woman as other actually alienates himself from himself because he doesn't acknowledge the subjectivity or freedom of the other. And she says, women pursue a dream of resignation, which is a very troubling idea. So it's not a simple manifesto to say women should just stand up, claim their freedom and subjectivity and be done. She says, they have become invested in this condition.
2: Oh, absolutely. That's one of the
1: reasons why it keeps going. Why what keeps going?
2: Why the subjugation keeps going?
1: Because
2: it's complicity, not always just complicity. Women are battered. Anyone who knows a battered woman knows that she has been battered physically and psychologically. So it's not just women saying, "Oh dear, I can't do it." So you're saying they are real physical forces and material
1: conditions. So there has to be material, political, legal liberation and protection defense. But then the other part is this is a book of philosophy and Simone de Beauvoir is saying giving you all this knowledge will not set you free. It's not a simple formula of knowing it means you're free now. No, no. It is action.
2: Often difficult acting by doing what men have not done to women mostly, which is to give others their subject to it at the same time so that liberation is psychological liberation is changing the cultural scripts, liberation is changing the economic conditions. She's written a total book about the need for total change, right. but she is also realistic. The end of the book, as you said, Uli, it's come on anyway. This is hard work, and men aren't going to like it, and women are going to have to work at it, and we have millennia to overcome. But this is our task.
1: Let me ask and you. And our obligation.
2: And every great, we're all aware that big things begin as small things. A thunderstorm begins maybe with one cloud, but big things begin with small things.
1: Well, you were going to look at a passage. Uh... I was
2: looking at a passage about love, because she says it is the idea of love. And saying to women that love is your supreme accomplishment—that is one of the great tracks—and
3: she says, "On the day when it will be possible for women to love. Le jour où il sera possible à la femme d'aimer dans sa force, non dans sa faiblesse, non pour se fuir mais pour se trouver, non pour se démettre mais pour s'affirmer, alors l'amour deviendra pour elle comme pour l'homme source de vie et non mortel danger. On the day when it will be possible for woman to love, not in her weakness but in her strength, not to escape herself but to find herself, not to abase herself but to assert herself, on that day love will become for her, as for man, a source of life and not, and of, not
2: of mortal fear. danger.
3: She is very shrewd
2: despite the limitations. And I think it's important and... My hunch is you agree with me, and I hope our listeners do. It is important to realize that this book has the four magnitudes I spoke of. But she would be the first to admit that possessing the four magnitudes is not the same thing as possessing perfection.
1: So that's an important distinction, right? A great book is not a perfect book. It probably is precisely not a perfect book because it allows people to start thinking for themselves, to take action, to uh, respond to this capacity of the imagination and that actually, I think it also does something, it teaches you something. It teaches you how to think about something so complex and so vast that you are part of.
2: Exactly. And we cannot let the book make us passive readers. The great book, with these four magnitudes, the great book makes us active readers, and like being subjects in the world, hard and arduous though that is, we claim our freedom as readers. And we take this book, and all its nearly 800 pages, and we find the passageways that are frail, or the passageways that lead nowhere. And then we engage in our great privilege, our great honor, and our great necessity. We engage as active rewriters
1: of the book. And this is some of what happened with the transition from a focus on women to the origin of which you've been an active and creative part of of gender as a field of study, of that goes from feminism to gender studies to the study of gender which encompasses Not to mention
2: LGBTQ
1: LGBTQ trans rights, all these things which are evolving and this is a foundational text but we don't mean as this is the bedrock on which everything is built but this is the tool with which to start right. thinking through other things
2: it is foundational but our human house A human mansion has many rooms, and this is the foundation of one of the
1: libraries. When Beauvoir was asked a lot of times that she uses existentialist philosophy, she suffered this fate of having been told many times, you're just the sidekick to Sartre, you're just the woman in the gang of existentialists. Frankly, I was educated at some fine schools. I had never once been assigned a sentence by Beauvoir, and I read Aragon, Breton, Malraux, Camus, right, right. Merleau-Ponty, Sartre. Somehow I managed to think that French intellectual life went straight through men, and then Hélène Sixou and Irigaray sprang forth from the heavens. Okay. So this book was not really present, but she wrote this book not to prove anything to anybody. I think. I'm not sure about that. I'm I think curious. she wrote this book to prove something to herself. To herself. Right. To herself. And this, I think, feels it feels like a very personal book, in spite of its right. length and erudition. This is the book where she writes
2: as a woman, but says what that means. But she's still the woman who says, "I say it because it's true." Right. I say it because it's true. If I can, early as we close. Can I go back to that sophomore from Columbia College taking crossing the street to take a course in Barnum College? What do you expect me, a college sophomore, to do about it? Look at your curriculum. See what's there. Look at the world around you. Look at the differences among it. Go back to this book because there is... A pathway for you and one of the pathways for men is ask yourself why it is so hard to accept the freedom equality of women. Why do men need power over women? And then women must ask themselves Do I give up my human power? I and mean, maybe do I need power over other people? What about my children? She has a long passage about motherhood. But the initial task after reading is self-reflection, is self-interrogation, and then to do that with others. We cannot build our strengths until we know our weaknesses.
1: And it's interesting that you would say to a student, read this book and reflect why do you need power, why do you want power, what does it give you? Tony Morrison, in a very well-known interview, says why do you have to have somebody on their knees to make you feel tall? That is not strength, that is not height, that is not tallness, that is just subjugating somebody to make you feel good. And this is what she asks. So the dependence, the investment in power as if it's a universal thing and nobody is actually giving it to you, which is the failure to recognize I have power because I subjugate somebody else versus I have power because I recognize other people's freedom. The Beauvoir wrote novels. She wrote an enormous amount of lectures and talks. There's been a great effort, I think, to make her feminist writings now available in English. University of Illinois has published these incredible mm-hmm. companion volumes. Would you recommend to somebody who doesn't have that much time to start with the last chapter and then work backwards, which is probably an unorthodox, scandalous, blasphemous way of looking at this? Um...
2: I'd recommend you start with the introduction.
1: The introduction, yes.
2: Because she lays the She's logical. She lays,
1: here's the introduction.
2: Here's what I'm doing. Here's what I'm doing. Here's what I'm doing. And try to work your way through it because the early chapters show you the burden of liberation and its necessity.
1: If I can ask you one final thing. So I started out by saying we are still... This book is going to be 70 years old next year. We're still engaged in questions that she raised 70 years ago, that John Stuart Mill wrote, raised 150 years ago, that many philosophers before John Stuart Mill, with the exception of people like Mary Wollstonecraft, who really wrote about women, mentioned women for maybe half a sentence in their entire philosophical era.
2: This is why it's so much of world culture either, as she points out, has either mythologized women or rendered them invisible. So either you're this, as I say, demonic creature or the eternal feminine or the rest of all that hoo-ha, or you're nothing, or you're confined to domesticity. You're rendered invisible, and that's very hard to be rendered invisible. But what we also have to realize, though it's only now making its way into the academic curriculum. Women are not dopes. They're not dopes. And there have been protests. Let me end with the final story. My grandmother was a wonderful woman, very traditional, this is my mother's mother, left school at the age of 12 to go into domestic service. You've heard me talk about this before.
1: This is on the West Coast already?
2: Well, she was born in Iowa and then she and her husband moved to the Pacific Northwest. And she whispered in my ear, whispered, men may work from sun to sun, but women's work is never done. It was a kind of knowledge that was invisible to the larger world. If we look at the Greek, Classical Greek drama Lysistrata that Beauvoir writes about. And women have their rebellions. And often in classical and my favorite figure is Antigone. And her So the record is there.
1: She actually writes about Antigone and she says, Antigone disobeys the law to find the law. Yes, yes, exactly. She disobeys the king's law to say there's another more authentic a real right. Because one's way of describing things is not the only way. Right, right.
2: So, women haven't been dopes. They haven't been rocks, all due respect to rocks. They have lived their lives as best they could. And sometimes they've really been awful. They've really been awful sometimes. They've not been these, the second sex has not been a series of plaster saints. But the second sex, if you look at history, You see that the second sex has had outbursts of being the first sex. Sometimes that happened in convents. So one can look at history. My good student, my dear student, one can look at history, and you can weep. But you must never be passive, because there are too many achievements. There's too much resistance taking a variety of forms. History shows our capacities in what Beauvoir says to us. Exercise them. Use them. It's hard. Who knows when all this will be over? But you must act. You must use the freedom that is as integral to being human as DNA. It is our moral and political DNA.
1: We'll end with that. This is Beauvoir's lesson. It's a moral failure not to act on your own freedom. Yes. She feels it's a shortcoming. It's It leads to all sorts of bad consequences. It's a moral shortcoming, a psychological, political, etc., but a moral shortcoming that to not realize, actualize one's own freedom. Right, but
2: also she's, she's just come out of the Second World War. And she says about the Jews, the Jews have also been othered. But what's interesting about the Jews is the people who other the Jews want to kill them at the same time. And men do not always want to kill women, they need them. They need them for children, they need them for love, they need them for labor, but they kill them too. And the Me Too movement, and the founders of the Me Too movement, I mean, they deserve enormous respect, and I'm glad you brought that up. The Me Too movement says, I will not be destroyed.
1: Right, which is, it starts out as an empowerment tool for survivors. Yeah. And now there's other narratives, and it's about uh, right. male people and men in power, but it's really that, to actually empower women to say they are shared stories, and we can make them public.
2: We are claiming our freedom, right. and we are claiming our dignity. And there will be, the word we use is there will be pushback. Pushback is such a mild word for such a terrible activity. But still, this is a book of profound realism and lightning flashes of hope. And to our listeners, read it as you can. Read it to rewrite it. And read it understanding what are the four magnitudes of a great book? Influence, language, thought,
1: morality. Thank you, Kate. This is wonderful. And Thank you, I've, I've read this book a few times. It's 800 pages. I'm going to read it again now.
2: <laughs> and rewrite. Thank you, Uli. And it's absolutely true. I did say to Uli when I knew he was doing this podcast series, And he asked me to be on. And I really did say to him, I thought you'd never ask because I love Uli. And it's been a great pleasure
1: to talk with you. So this has been a wonderful experience to be your student for another hour, Kate. Thank you. No, no, no. You were my (laughs) co-teacher. Thank you. (laughs)
3: On approchera l'homme qui ne dira pas, ne dira pas non, amour des qui sont les.